This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do for as little as a buck a month, or to sign up as a member and get commercial-free versions of every episode, plus members-only bonus content, sign up at patreon.com slash bestofleft, or visit the Contribute tab at bestofleft.com. Now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of Left podcast, in which we shall learn about Trump's ongoing war with journalism and the dangers it poses to journalists and democracy itself. Clips today come from Newsbeat, The Bradcast, The Trumpcast, On the Media, The Tom Hartman Program, and The David Batman Show. Every administration of the last three administrations has in different ways undermined uh, the press's ability to do its business in very different ways. The Bush administration was just very adept at manipulating, uh, taking advantage of the inefficiencies of the press to present an otherwise indefensible agenda, an otherwise indefensible conduct, just failures that, had they been not as well presented to the press, would have resulted in impeachment, you know, in an extreme case. Barack Obama was different in that he was someone who had a lot of goodwill going in. And just as always been the case in American politics, where a Republican can do certain things like Nixon can go recognize China and Bill Clinton can pursue welfare reform because Nixon's a Republican. You don't expect a Republican to do that. And Clinton's a Democrat and so on. That means that the Obama administration was actually well positioned to impinge upon the ability of the press to do its job because they did have that goodwill that helps to facilitate that. It helped to make it seem like less of an extreme thing than it was. Now we have Trump, whose job is to maintain a constituency that is immune to facts and is immune to investigation and, and, and condemnation. And that's that's a very different animal that we're dealing with. Fake news is a household term now. We not even half a term down. And yet it's looking like the world gonna burn down. I'm worried. He tweeting out the words that's heard around the planet. Immortalized but fact proof Why should I even bother to have my story be backed by truth The powerful ain't worried they got more to make Their fortune's safe they already on their fourth estate Of course that makes the smaller baits fate seem sorta of gravely Especially when they're reporting sense and I play it safely I'm talking more than bravery Something they swore maybe And then I write about puff pieces and pastries When you water down the merit, expect erosion And when you yelling at an avalanche, then you get snowed in And when you rising and they threaten you into disclosing You start to question the direction that we're going I think the general idea is that the public does respect their press and that institution of journalism in their country. I think that what's going on here in the U.S., there was already a problem before the election, but I think it's really was tapped into by President Trump during his election. He really played to that underlying distrust and kind of amplified it. And so now it's really much of a bigger problem and it needs to be addressed because the relationship between Trump bashing the press and then the press that kind of pushes back and says, you know, no, actually we are just doing our job, but then their coverage is very aggressive and fact-based and sometimes people are portraying that as just being negative coverage all the time. There has to be a distinction drawn between the way Trump uses the term and the actual concept of false information and then also distinguish that from propaganda. So people that are sitting on their computer and actually churning out stories of innuendo that really have nothing to do with fact. I mean, that's what we're 
typically refer to as fake news. And I want you all to know that we are fighting the fake news. It's fake, phony, fake. A few days ago, I called the fake news the enemy of the people, and they are. They are the enemy of the people. And the way Trump is using the term is literally to label any media outlet or any journalist or any story that's unfavorable to him or that he just doesn't like the story because it's a critical story. That's his fallback accusation. Because they have no sources. They just make them up when there are none. I saw one story recently where they said nine people have confirmed. There are no nine people. I don't believe there was one or two. People. Nine people. And I said, give me a break, because I know the people. I know who they talk to. There were no nine people, but they say nine people. And somebody reads it, and they think, oh, nine people, they have nine sources. They make up sources. I think it gives the repressive governments green light, either to keep doing what they've been doing, or to step up what they were doing kind of in small instances, maybe hoping the U.S. wouldn't notice. And then when the U.S. does make statements, because sometimes statements come out of the State Department that are very strong and condemn, for example, I think there was a there was a Wall Street Journal reporter who does live here in the U.S., but she was sentenced to prison in Turkey in absentia. And I think there was a very strong statement coming out of the State Department condemning that decision. But when you have that statement, and then a week later, two weeks later, the president calling for the revoking of media licenses... I think that that sends a really mixed signal to these foreign governments and these authoritarian leaders who want to crack down on the press and actually who do have countries where they control the media licenses based on loyalty to the political party that's in power. Go ahead. Sure. No, Mr. President-elect. Go ahead. Mr. President-elect, since you are attacking no, our news not organization, you. Not can you. you give us a chance? Your organization You are attacking our news organization. organization. Can you give us a chance Let's to go. ask a question, sir? Go ahead. Sir, can Quiet. you state... Quiet. Can, Quiet. Mr. President-elect, go ahead. Can you state categorically... Ask a question. Don't Mr. President-elect, can you give us a question? Don't be You're rude. You're attacking us. Can you give us a question? Don't be rude. Can you give us a question? Can I'm you, not going to give you a can question. You sta- can you stay categorically? You are fake news. Sir, Go ahead. can you stay categorically that nobody... No, Mr. President-elect, that's not Go appropriate. Ahead. I think press freedom in the United States is really complicated. You know, on one hand, the First Amendment is still alive and fairly well, which means that newspapers do have the freedom to basically publish what they want without being censored, which is um, a very important thing that we shouldn't forget, that almost all countries don't have something like the First Amendment, and it does allow newspapers to publish this type of information where they could be prosecuted in other countries. But at the same time, the government attacks them from all sorts of different angles, not related to the actual publishing. So they'll go after the the leakers or the whistleblowers and the sources. They'll conduct surveillance on journalists. The Associated Press says that the U.S. Justice Department has been secretly monitoring them for over two months. During that time, the DOJ collected telephone records of reporters and editors at the AP. The Associated Press called this, quote, a massive and unprecedented intrusion into how news organizations gather the news. In some cases, they'll even subpoena them uh, to force them to testify or try to force them to testify. And now we're seeing with Trump this kind of daily barrage of insults that he's throwing at the press to try to delegitimize uh, what they report about him so that no one will believe it. If you want to discover the source of the division in our country, look no further than the fake news and the crooked media, which would rather get ratings and clicks than tell the truth. 
And so these are uh, certainly attacks on the general principles of press freedom and are very concerning, especially when you, over the long run, where these newspapers, especially with uh, them financially hurting, um, can be uh, kind of run into the ground by this constant uh, legal and, and public pressure that they face from government officials. Well, I think that it's in many ways the the U.S. still has uh, the most vibrant and free press in the world. There are many other ways where these rights are, are being eroded, and it's important uh, for the public uh, to be aware that these these rights are not just for journalists; they're for everyone. We receive information through these journalists as a conduit. And it is a, a really important safety valve of democracy uh, that we don't want to lose. Claim you love joy but promote hate. Oh, it's only okay if it's home base. If it's a foe, they go ruthless and that has no place. But right here, you don't like someone, license revoked today. Open season if you don't toe the line. No shield laws, decline, motion denied. Oh, so you silencing the folks that's already quiet. That's not just petty, but it's damn near violent. Hypocritical men criticize and condemn. Demonize dictators, but legitimize them. Finger on the bomb trigger, but still scared of a pen. His leg is to get within. I'm not here to pretend. Careful with the type of mixed signals you send. There's blood on the ink. It could give life or it could shed. It can set an example of trampling the press or be a shining light in this mess. Republicans in the House of Representatives released the so-called Comey memos, the memos that FBI Director Jim Comey had created after his various meetings with Donald Trump because Jim Comey thought that uh, this was so bizarre that he needed to have it documented contemporaneously. Uh, these memos uh, were released and proved that pretty much everything that James Comey has been saying is exactly what he said at the time that these things happened in these memos. Now, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago when the memos got released. And at the time, I focused on one specific part. Everyone else is talking about Russian hookers um, and so forth and the, the conversation that uh, Trump seemed to be obsessed with. But I kind of honed in on this part. Um, where Trump seemed to talk about jailing journalists. So in the, uh, in the actual memos, Comey said, I was uh, eager to find leakers. Um, uh, they were talking about the uh, people who were leaking things uh, from the FBI to the media. He said, uh, Comey said, uh, I said I was eager to find leakers and would like to nail one on the door as a message. I said something about it being difficult. And Trump replied that we need to go after the reporters and referred to the fact that 10 or 15 years ago, we put them in jail to find out what they know. And it worked. He mentioned Judy Miller by name, says Comey. That's the uh, New York Times reporter who uh, had helped the George W. Bush administration leak the name of a covert CIA operative, Valerie Plame. Uh, Comey goes on to write, I explained that I was a fan of pursuing leaks aggressively, but that going after reporters was tricky for legal reasons. And because DOJ tends to approach it conservatively, he replied, Trump replied by telling me to talk to Sessions, that would be Attorney General Jeff Sessions, and see what we can do about being more aggressive. 
I told him I would speak to the attorney general. Then later on in the same memo, the president came back to it again. Comey says the president then wrapped up our conversation by returning to the issue of finding leakers. I said something about the value of putting a head on a pike as a message. He replied by saying it may involve putting reporters in jail. And then he uses direct quotes to say they spend a couple of days in jail, make a new friend, and they are ready to talk, quoting the president of the United States, repeatedly talking about throwing journalists into jail. So this is not just a campaign uh, technique that he uses to gin up his base that Donald Trump uses. Uh, he means it. He was talking in private conversation with the director of the FBI before he then fired the director of the FBI. He was talking to the director of the FBI repeatedly about throwing reporters in jail. Imagine if there was, uh, you know, Obama was talking about throwing journalists in jail behind closed doors and this came out. Um, so uh, anyway, I just want to remind you of that. And then let me move to this from uh, BuzzFeed. Uh, Since the fall, the U.S. Department of Justice has been overhauling its manual, the U.S. Attorney's Manual, for federal prosecutors. In, they write, Attorney General Jeff Sessions' tough-on-crime policies out, a section titled Need for Free Press and Public Trial. References to the department's work on racial gerrymandering is gone. Language about limits on prosecutorial power has been edited down, BuzzFeed reports. The changes include new sections that underscore Sessions' focus on religious liberty and the Trump administration's effort to crack down on government leaks. There's new language admonishing prosecutors not to share classified information and directing them to report any and all contacts with the media to the DOJ. The uh, deputy attorney general, Rod Rosenstein, apparently led this charge to update the U.S. attorney's manual, which traditionally provides policies and guidance on DOJ legal work. The manual hadn't seen uh, a major update since 1997, according to BuzzFeed. They tracked the online changes that were made to the manual and by comparing them to the Internet Archive's Wayback Machine version of the manual. And in the manual's media contacts policy section, a subsection titled Need for Free Press and Public Trial was deleted entirely from the manual. According to BuzzFeed's review of of the, uh, the new manual, the new version, that section, which had been in the manual since 1988, had used to say, quote, careful weight must be given in each in each case to the constitutional requirements of a free press and public trials as well as the right of the people in, constitu- in a constitutional democracy to have access to information about the conduct of law enforcement officers, prosecutors, and courts consistent with the individual rights of the accused. The manual used to say recognition should be given to the rights of the public to be informed on matters that can affect enactment or enforcement of public laws or the development or change of public policy. That has all been removed from the Department of Justice's uh, internal uh, U.S. Attorney's Manual, what they use as guidance uh, during prosecutions. 
parts of the rest of the media contact section was also edited to include new language about determining whether to release information to the public, including uh, weighing the, quote, right of the public to have access to information with other factors. Uh, also, according to BuzzFeed, by the way, uh, part of the manual addressing the uh, Justice Department's civil rights work was revised a section about about the Voting Rights Act and redistricting and racial gerrymandering was changed. The previous version had said the, the voting section defends from unjustified attack redistricting plans designed to provide minority voters fair opportunities to elect candidates of their choice and endeavors to achieve racially fair results where courts find that redistricting plans constitute unconstitutional racial gerrymanders. That section is also gone from the DOJ's new version of the manual. But I want to focus specifically today on the fact that the U.S. Department of Justice appears to be doing Trump's bidding here by limiting access to facts for the media, removing, as I said, that entire section about the need for a free press. Of course, that doesn't change the First Amendment of the Constitution itself. That is still there. But it does give you an idea of what this Department of Justice, at least, thinks about the need to prioritize the needs of a free press in this country. for the midterms minute, a look at the candidates and races you need to know about, shout about, and support to make sure we have a blue tsunami on November 6th. With the exception of Louisiana, the Senate and House candidates for the midterms are nearly set. We want to remind you that the Massachusetts primary is coming up on September 4th, and the Delaware primary is on September 6th. If you missed our spotlights on those states, head to bestoftheleft.com slash activism. You can still make a difference by getting involved no matter what state you live in. Both Justice Democrats and brand new Congress offer get-out-the-vote online calling and texting tools with scripts on individual candidates, allowing you to talk to voters from the comfort of home. This is a great way to make a real impact. We've included links to both of these tools in the show notes. Today, we're going to talk about New Hampshire and Rhode Island. We'll start with New Hampshire, where the primary will take place on September 11th. Brand new Congress candidate and New Hampshire State Representative Mindy Messimer is running for Congress in a Democratic primary field of 11 candidates. She's one of only two candidates not taking special interest or PAC money. A former environmental scientist, her whistleblowing on cancer-causing water contamination from a landfill in her community and the difficult fight to address it led her to run for state rep. New Hampshire's first district is known as a district that constantly swings, and Trump only won there by less than two percentage points. On the Republican side, two candidates are spending way more than they're taking in while duking it out over which one of them is the Trumpiest. New Hampshire's Republican governor, Chris Sununu, is up for re-election this year. The Democrats vying to run against him in November are state rep Molly Kelly and Portsmouth Mayor Steve Marchand. Both are focusing on Sununu's hindering of the state's renewable energy industry. Neither Kelly nor Marchand are championing Medicare for all, but Kelly says healthcare is a right, while healthcare is not an issue listed on Marchand's website. Both are opposed to a major hydro project and a natural gas pipeline project proposed in the state. 
New Hampshire voting is sadly restrictive. Unregistered voters can theoretically register in person and vote on primary day, but details vary by locality and required documents and voter ID laws apply. If you want to be registered before primary day, your physical registration form must be received 10 days ahead of the election since online voter registration is not available. We've included a link to a list of contact information for all New Hampshire local election offices in the show notes for your convenience. If you plan to vote in the general, don't wait to start this process. We now turn to Rhode Island, which will hold their primary on September 12th. In the race for governor of Rhode Island, Justice Democrat and former Rhode Island Secretary of State Matt Brown is running to take the nomination away from the Democratic incumbent Gina Raimondo. Brown has entered the race to roll back Raimondo's restrictions on abortion, end her corporate giveaways at the expense of locals, fight for Medicare for all, and build a sustainable local renewable energy economy. Brown is also co-founder of the Nobel Peace Prize-nominated organization Global Zero, which works to reduce and eliminate nuclear weapons. As for lieutenant governor, Justice Democrat Aaron Regenberg is hoping to knock out incumbent Democrat Daniel McKee. Regenberg has endorsements from Rhode Island chapters of Our Revolution, Sierra Club, Planned Parenthood, Clean Water Action, and many more. The voter registration deadline to participate in the Rhode Island primary was August 13th. The deadline to register to vote in the general election is October 9th. We want to emphasize registration cutoff dates and absentee ballot requests and submission dates are different for each state, sometimes even each county. We highly suggest reviewing your state's information and voter ID laws at rockthevote.org as soon as possible to ensure you will be able to vote in both the primary and general elections. We know you heard a lot of names and dates today, but we hope you'll take a moment to check the segment notes, which include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources. And today's Midterms Minute, just like every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the activism tab at bestofleft.com. So if building the bluest of blue waves is important to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about supporting progressive candidates across the country via social media so that others in your network can spread the word too. Jay Rosen joins me on the line. He's a professor of journalism at NYU, and he writes the Press Think blog. Jay, thanks for joining me on the show today. My pleasure, Jacob. So I gather you gave a talk at a symposium recently, a version of which is on the New York Review website, entitled Why Trump is Winning and the Press is Losing. That's depressing. Why do you think Trump's winning and the press is losing? Well, partly because before journalists log on in the morning, about one-third of their potential public is gone in the sense that they are hardcore Trump supporters and they reject on principle what the mainstream press is reporting. That's a big deal. And many other forms in which his attack on the press uh, takes place are effective. Uh, For example, um, fact-checking, which is something journalists do, hasn't stopped him from not only misstating but just fabricating statements constantly. And the United States press's uh, place in the world as a kind of beacon of freedom is eroding. Just today, the Reporters Without Borders put out a new ranking for free press around the world, and the United States ranks 45th in that. So 
That's what I mean by he's winning. He's eroding the place of the press and the political system. He's eroding its public and he's eroding the democratic norms that support journalism. So to argue the other side a, a little bit, wouldn't you agree that that third you talk about, the third of the public that isn't paying attention to, to mainstream media, to, to real media, the media had already lost them. It just didn't know it had lost them by the time of the election. And Trump has uh, underscored that phenomenon that there are people who have alternative news sources that are not, in many cases, are highly distorted, dishonest news sources. But they haven't really gained since the election, and the mainstream media hasn't lost. I mean, just in terms of who people are listening to, it's more like a standoff with the polarized audiences seeking out media that they find sympathetic. Yeah, to some degree, I would agree with that. I mean, the the events... Uh, that I write about um, in this New York Review of Books piece have been a long time coming, uh, and that portion of the public had discovered information sources of its own a long time ago. That's true. One of the more worrisome things that's happened, though, since Trump came to power is that increasingly they name Trump as their source of information about Trump. And that is especially worrisome because that's pretty much the definition of an authoritarian news system. So it's worse. Uh, I think it's, it's, it's more extreme because of his um, campaigning for this mistrust from the top of the society. But certainly it's, it's a condition that grew over decades and Trump has exploited it. I mean, one way I would say that Trump would be winning would be if the press were unable in a significant way to hold him and his administration accountable. But mm-hmm. reading all this media, I sort of see the opposite. I mean, I see fantastic accountability journalism being done. There's some caveats, um, which I think have to do in many ways with just the, the welter of so much going on in so many places that it's hard for for reporters to keep track of it all. It's hard for certainly hard for audiences to follow it all. But in terms of holding this administration accountable, wouldn't you say journalists are doing a fantastic job of that? Yes, if we put it this way, that there is fantastic accountability journalism being done. Whether he's actually being held accountable is another question. That's not just the job of journalists. It's also the job of the political system. And here, I think it's really important to emphasize that um, Republican elites have not come to the defense of democratic institutions and democratic norms that Trump is busting left and right, nor have they tried to persuade Republican voters that maybe attacking the nation's news media is not such a great thing to be doing. And until Republican elites speak up for all of the institutions that he's attacking, then I don't think any sort of accountability really is going to happen. So that's a, that's a very important uh, detail in all this, is that because he's been so successful in uh, creating this bond with core supporters, the Republican Party is afraid to challenge him. But you're setting a pretty high bar for the press there in terms of results, Jay. I mean, the, uh, I certainly agree with you that that the Republicans in, in Congress and, and in the Institutional Republican Party has exhibited this kind of moral collapse. But it's not because 
they don't know what's happening. It's not because they're not being effectively informed by an independent press performing this accountability function. It's simply they're making a political choice. And if you're, if, you know, if your standard is the one we have to apply, then the press can only be winning if Republicans drum Trump out of office. I'm not holding my breath. Well, I'm not, but okay. So you tell me, Jake, what do you mean by he is being held accountable? The the press is robustly fulfilling its function of examining and exposing corruption in government, abuse of government. Trump's lies are being uh, documented and cataloged by one by one. And uh, I think, in some ways, most impressively, the the press has been doing that without being drawn into an overly personalized fight. The press is still functioning in this very professional way, saying essentially, you know, in in Marty Barron's words, we're not at war with Trump, we're at work. Or, you know, as I, w- I would put it, um, they are not at war with Trump personally. They're performing their, their basic function. Well, I guess I have a, a bit of a different view in that I think being held accountable does have something to do with results. So, for example, Glenn Kessler, the fact checker for the Washington Post, has made this point several times that in the past, when the press fact checked candidates or presidents and uh, kept at it, the political figure would not necessarily admit uh, he was or she was wrong, but they would stop saying that thing that created the um, the problem. Uh, they would revise their claim. Uh, because they didn't want to suffer the censure or the penalty of being factually incorrect. Yeah. So that was holding uh, government government accountable. That was holding politicians accountable. Now you have a different situation where you have relentless fact checking. The Washington Post uh, a few months ago printed you know one thousand lies and misstatements the president's made, but it has zero effect. He's not being held accountable by that at all. And that's that's the point I'm making. There's a difference between between publishing accountability journalism and um, and it actually working. So you have this character, Donald Trump, who is, who is can't be shamed because he's incapable of shame and, right. and doesn't care. I guess the question is, has that created a new norm that other uh, another Republican president or other Republican politicians will try to apply to themselves? Are others applying it to themselves? Are others simply ignoring being called out on lies and distortions? Is Trump setting the model or is the, the, the older uh, framework you talked about where politicians were capable of shame still still apply? That and another thing to keep your eye on is how many Republican candidates around the country as the 2018 election kicks into gear are, are going to use these, these hate attacks on the news media to get elected and support uh, Republican voters in their sort of worst impulses towards the press. Is, does that spread from Trump to many candidates around the country? I think it might, and that's a worrisome thing. Thank you. 
Today's episode is sponsored by BetterHelp, which provides affordable, private online counseling. When you sign up at betterhelp.com best, you get unlimited access to a licensed, trained, fully accredited therapist on your phone and computer through text, voice, or video chat. And of course, they're LGBT-friendly. It's great for individuals or couples counseling for anything you're going through in life right now. And of course, in this political climate, who couldn't use a little extra help? When you get started, you fill out a question questionnaire so they can match you with a counselor who's perfect for you, and you can start counseling today. But if you decide you don't vibe with the therapist you're matched with, you can switch whenever you want. It's less expensive than in-person counseling, but you're still getting the same great help from licensed professionals. A lot of people are not comfortable talking to a therapist in person, or they simply don't have the time, but with better help, you connect from anywhere you are at home, work, or on the go, and if you have trouble affording it, BetterHelp even has financial aid available. You can sign up right now and save on quality professional therapy by going to betterhelp.com best. You can take a step towards supporting your own mental health and support this show at the same time by using our link to let them know we sent you. That's betterhelp.com best, and that link is in our show notes. What defines a shiny object? In the Trump era, it's the latest outrage or lie, ethical violation, or Twitter tantrum dominating the headlines and igniting the pundits on cable news. This week, the White House moved to lower emission standards for cars, weaken oversight of its most high-risk nuclear facilities, is being sued by four cities for violating the law by undermining the Affordable Care Act. And Trump sided with the House and against the Senate for stiffer work requirements for food stamps. It didn't make a dent. Seduced by shiny object. It's what marks we who tweet or post or report the news as perpetual suckers, distracted yet again from the crucial and complex. But how could it be otherwise? The bombardment is so relentless, it's impossible to appraise each individual burst. That is, until you realize that, really, there's only one shiny object. And that's the president himself, fulgent as a forest fire, incinerating whatever stands in his way. At one point, he started to attack the press. And it's just me and my boss and him. In a, he has a huge office, and he's attacking the press. And it, there were no cameras, there was nothing going on. And I said, you know, that is getting tired. Why are you doing this? You're doing it over 60 Minutes correspondent Leslie Stahl snagged President Trump's first post-election TV interview in November 2016. Why do you keep hammering at this? And he said, you know why I do it? I do it to discredit you all and demean you all so when you write negative stories about me, no one will believe you. In May of 2017, Politico published a major piece titled Trump's Fake War on Fake News, arguing that he didn't mean it. It was just a game. Quote, In societies around the world, anthropologists have observed a phenomenon called ritualized warfare, a sort of pantomime of battle most famously observed among the Dani people of Papua New Guinea, who would regularly line up in formation to shout insults and shoot arrows at warriors from rival villages. The practice results in a lot of noise and relatively little bloodshed, allowing both sides to advertise their courage 
and vent emotion while avoiding catastrophic loss of human life. Even if that were true, does it matter? His supporters believe him. You can't watch those videos from the Tampa rally without coming away pretty persuaded that his supporters have concluded that the press is their enemy. Greg Sargent is a writer for The Washington Post and its Plumline blog. Obviously, he noted, all presidents wrestle with their press. Most presidents, no matter how contentious their relations with the media got, still viewed the media grudgingly as a legitimate institution with an important role to play in in our democracy. And, And I think we have to take that seriously. He has adopted an approach which rests on as much deliberate provocation as possible, designed to make as many people in as many quarters as possible as angry as possible. We also really need to be blunt about the fact that the provocations are racist, right? When he refused to unambiguously condemn the white supremacists in Charlottesville, he was deliberately sidestepping his institutional responsibility to speak to the country in a unifying and conciliatory way and choosing instead to stoke racial tensions at a moment of searing national introspection. You've probably seen at least one of the tapes posted of an enraged crowd of Trump supporters, men, women, and their children at a Trump rally in Tampa, jeering at CNN's Jim Acosta, giving him the finger and screaming, CNN sucks! You may not have heard Fox's Sean Hannity, herald of the common man, offering CNN's Acosta some tough love. Jim. They're not wrong. It's not false. I'm going to actually give your network some advice. If you have an open mind and an open heart, maybe a little humility. The people of this country, they're screaming at you for a reason. They don't like your unfair, abusively biased treatment of the president of the United States. Acosta said he stopped and talked to some of his detractors in Tampa. Evan Axelbank, a reporter with Fox 13 Tampa Bay, also covering the rally, tweeted that, quote, Trump supporters can boo and say forever that they hate CNN and Acosta, but after the cameras are off, all I can see is them asking his opinion on everything under the sun and if they can take pictures with him. It's quite a phenomenon, and he handles it like a pro. In a similar but arguably less alarming situation in 2008, Hannity, the People's Herald, took a different path. Rather than listening to the salt of the earth, truth-loving Ron Paul supporters screaming, Fox sucks, he fled into a hotel lobby. You suck, Sean! The first time Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders confronted press questions about the rage in Tampa, she said the media do bad things, too, citing a long-debunked story about how the media jeopardized crucial intelligence on Osama bin Laden. Unfortunately, it's now standard to abandon common sense ethical practices. This is a two-way street. We certainly support a free press. We certainly condemn violence against anybody, but we also ask that people act responsibly uh, and report... um, accurately and fairly. It was another case of whataboutism. Trump increasingly profits from the businesses he never stepped away from when he took the presidency. But what about the Clinton Foundation? His pal Putin murders people, but America does bad things too. There was fault on all sides in Charlottesville. 
Don't look at the angry mob in Tampa, unless, of course, you approve. Look instead at the lying press. It essentially invites supporters to indulge themselves in baseless and phony resentment as a way to not take seriously whatever issue is at hand, right? And then when people criticize that, you hear, well, what about the media's lies? Well, again, you know, the media doesn't lie the way Trump does, and it corrects itself as much as it can. Some of the media. Yeah, but the point is that the whataboutism in this particular case invites his supporters to just shrug off extremely serious abuses. And his son approvingly tweets out the harassment with the caption, hashtag truth. The hashtag truth, I believe, was meant to apply to the CNN sucks chant. But even so, I mean, Eric Trump is saying, we like this. Daddy Trump likes this. And then, of course, Trump himself tweeted it. And so it's a direct encouragement to do more of it. According to a Quinnipiac poll conducted in April, 53% of respondents said they trusted the news media over President Trump. 81% of Republicans said they trusted Trump over the media. When asked if the news media are the enemy of the people or an important part of democracy, 66% of respondents said they were an important part of democracy. 51% of Republicans chose enemy of the people. Jim Acosta at Thursday's press briefing. For, for the sake of this room, the people who are in this room, this democracy, this country, all the people around the world are watching what you're saying, Sarah, and the White House for the United States of America, the President of the United States should not refer to us as the enemy of the people. His own daughter acknowledges that, and all I'm asking you to do, Sarah, is to acknowledge that right now and right here. I, I appreciate your passion. I share it. Um, I've addressed this question. I've addressed my personal feelings. I'm here to speak on behalf of the president. He's made his comments clear. If this program were fixated on the president's anti-press obsession, which we could feasibly be, you wouldn't listen to it. Neither would we. But viewed as the tip of the spear in his war on accountability, on evidence, on reality itself, that's something else. Wielding hatred as a distraction from the real problems hiding in plain sight, creating scapegoats to absorb the bitterness of the disenfranchised while the rich and powerful persist in enriching and empowering themselves? That's malignant stuff. Brutal stuff. But in some major media precincts, there are those who say Trump is making America great again. As optimism in the country grows, and as more people reject the mainstream media, journalists get furious, like mean girls uninvited to the prom. Greg Gutfield, one of the Fox Five. It began when Trump was elected, when Paul Krugman and his ilk then predicted, of course, economic collapse. Wrong again, you jackasses. <laughs> the economy is on fire, which is the only reason you can afford therapy. The economy hasn't changed much for me. For the rich, though, it is on fire. For the poor, it's scorched earth. According to a recent UN report, 18 and a half million Americans suffer extreme impoverishment. The White House says it's a quarter million. One in five American children is impoverished. But it's all working out. And just remember, what you're seeing and what you're reading is not what's happening. And I'll tell you, I have so many people 
that are so in favor. Because we have to make our country truly great again. Remember? Make America great again. And then in two and a half years, it's called Keep America Great. So the way we keep America great... At least I can afford therapy. So I guess America is great for me. And in the world, according to Trump, who else is there, really? The despots go after the first thing. If you are a politician and you want to destroy the norms of governance, destroy the norms of politics, and be able to say and do anything you want, you have to get the, the, the one power that can check you out of the equation. Now, many people think that one power is Congress or the courts, right? Hey, we have three-part government. I learned this in fourth grade. And, you know, the, the judiciary and the executive branch check the legislative branch, and the legislative branch checks the executive branch, which is the president, and the judiciary can check the, you know, and this is what we learned, right? And this is what we think. But the fact of the matter is that if Trump did something that was wildly off, 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 off the scale, say, putting little children in cages, tearing them away from their mothers, and Congress stood up to do something about it, if it was never reported, you would never know it. Think about that for a minute. If Congress tried to fight back, successfully or unsuccessfully, if it was never reported, you would never know it. If the courts blocked Trump or any president, if it was never reported, you would never know it. So if you want to get around the checks and balances built into our republic, carefully put there by James Madison and others of the founders. And, you know, I get it. It was imperfect in a hundred different ways. In fact, I'm writing a book right now about how the Constitution was basically a document designed to protect property rights. But if, if, you, if you want those checks and balances to be functional, you need a fourth check. And the framers of the Constitution understood this. Thomas Jefferson said, if I were to have to choose between a country that had a government but no newspapers or a country that had newspapers but no government, I would surely choose the latter. Newspapers but no government. The press was that important. It's why they wrote it into the First Amendment. Freedom of the press shall not be abridged. Congress shall pass no laws abridging the freedom of the press. Now, the fact of the matter is, in my opinion, Congress has passed numerous laws abridging freedom of the press that have to do with leaks and confidential sources and things, and they should pass a law providing for the protection of the press. But the, but the bottom line of this rant, the point of this whole rant, is that it's not the check on the power of the president is not in Congress or in the courts. Those are a check on the president, but the check on the president is the press. And so if a president 
wants to defy the courts, wants to defy Congress, wants to defy the will of the American people and do something that's terribly unpopular or even criminal and wants to get away with it, the first thing that president has to do is destroy the credibility of the press among the American people. Cause the American people to believe that the press cannot be relied on, the press cannot be trusted. Don't believe the press. And then provide alternative options for people that simply echo your line. Fox News isn't fake news. It's the only real news out there. And you watch Fox News for 15 minutes and you go, oh my God, do people actually believe this stuff? You go to MediaMatters.org every single day. They show, I mean, just the, 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 the craziness that's on Fox News. Uh, you know, uh, Sean Hannity, I'm reading from MediaMatters.org. And you can see these clips. Uh, Sean Hannity celebrates CNN's Jim Acosta being harassed by Trump supporters at Florida rally. Fox and Friends deceptively edit clips to claim Senator was confused about family separation policy. Uh, Right wing, uh, let's see, uh, Tucker Carlson, the left's opposition to ICE, violates a basic principle of Anglo-American civilization. Yes, because if we didn't come from Britain, we don't deserve to be here. Have you noticed those British people are mostly white? It's uh, conservative. It just it just goes on and on. I mean, you know, it's and you can, as I said, Jesse Waters, immigrants should be the best and the brightest. Not some guy's uncle from Zimbabwe. A little race there, Jesse. So this is what a a wannabe dictator has to do is first destroy the credibility of the press. It's what Erdogan did in Turkey. It's, it's what uh, uh, Rodrigo Duterte is doing in the Philippines right now. It's what uh, El Sisi did in Egypt. It, it, I mean, this is happening all over the world. If you would love a way to financially support this show without it costing you anything, there's good news. You can support the show by bookmarking and using my affiliate link every time you shop with that company online. You know, basically the one company online. Lots of evil tendencies, owned by the richest dude in the world, that one. Chances are you shop there at least now and then, maybe even a lot. Perhaps you make a lot of business-related purchases, I know some of you do. Or maybe you have a standard selection of home goods you get delivered regularly. In any case, You might have some mixed feelings about it, and you'd be right to, but if you do end up using the site, at least you can help siphon off some of that corporate blood money to help support the production of this show. Your shopping experience will be identical to usual, and it won't cost you a dime more. You can get the affiliate link from the show notes on the device you're using to listen right now, or you can find it on the sidebar of the homepage at bestofleft.com. You can bookmark the link so you can set it and forget it while continuing to support us into the future. It helps more than you think, I promise it does, and the more who join in, the more it helps. So thanks for taking the time. One of the most important checks on government power is a free and independent press. This is it's one of the building blocks upon which the United States of America is built. And I want to put aside for now sort of the pragmatic reality that media is often taken over by corporate interests in the United States, but focus more on the existence of media as an institution. The Trump administration has been attacking the media 
as the enemy of the people rather than saying this is a crucial and fundamental necessity in democratic societies. That's what you, you would want to hear from someone who claims to defend the Constitution and checks and balances and the sort of uh, foundational tenets of the United States. But instead, what we've heard from Trump is that the enemy of the people is the media. And this is particularly boneheaded, considering that the right who talks about needing to protect themselves from a tyrannical government and wanting rifles and handguns to do it, the reality is that a free and independent press is one of the best protections you can have against the tyrannical government that they claim to fear. It almost is like they just say that in order to justify having even more guns. Tons of examples of Donald Trump framing media as bad for America. One tweet, just as an example from last year, Donald Trump saying the fake news media, failing New York Times, NBC News, ABC, CBS, CNN, is not my enemy. It is the enemy of the American people. And there are countless iterations of this trying to frame the media as an enemy of Americans at large. It has now been brought to my attention by a few of our viewers that the Trump administration or the Trump campaign or the Trump organization, it's a pretty uh, blurry line between these organizations at this point, have sent out a survey to Republicans called the Media Accountability Survey, which is basically meant to do two things. Number one, it's a total push poll, and I'll explain what that is in a second. It's a total push poll to push people into certain beliefs. And number two, it's a survey meant to generate one-sided results, which they can then use to justify even more subsequent attacks on media outlets that are doing really good critical reporting on Donald Trump. So let's look through this a little bit. The certified website of President Donald J. Trump sent out the mainstream media accountability survey. Uh, and this is truly a, cl a clinic on push polling. Let's look at these first two questions, okay? If you wanted to do this fairly, like if we pretend they actually wanted less biased data, instead of saying, do you believe the mainstream media actually cares about working Americans, which is the way that they worded it, you would instead say, please rate the degree to which you feel the mainstream media represents the interests of working Americans. And you might have options like they always do, they mostly do, they sometimes do, stuff like that. Second question, also a push-pull question. Do you believe that the mainstream media has unfairly reported our pres on our presidency? That is a push question. Again, if you wanted uh, to, to ascertain this in a, in a more fair way, you would say, please rate the fairness of the mainstream media on the presidency. Mostly fair, always, but whatever, right? I think you understand the, the way that it would sort of go. Uh, next, another question. This is just a sampling. On which issues does the mainstream media do the worst job of representing Republicans? And then you can check off as many as you want. Immigration, economics, pro-life pro values, religion, whatever the case may be. I'm not going to go through the entire survey, but you sort of get the picture. And what's notable here isn't that they're push polling. That's actually really common. The notable thing is that a concerted effort is being made here by Trump himself in speeches and in interviews, by Trump's advisors who have started to pick up on this, the media is the enemy thing. And now by this survey, to turn media, to turn people rather, against the media. And this survey is being promoted with huge ad dollars. We have started to get emails from people saying, David, there are ads appearing on your videos on YouTube 
promoting this survey. They are buying ad space all over the Internet. If you go to the Trump supporting forums on the Internet, you will see that this is working. If you go to I don't even name it, but I think some of you know a particular enclave within a major Internet message board of discussion, you'll see Trump is there saying stuff like, quote, and I'm, I'm quoting here. The media is the next target. So let's take a step back and see if we can understand what's going on here. They claim that they're for the Constitution and for law and order. They're interfering in investigations carried out by the Justice Department. They are contradicting their supposed support of checks and balances. They're making deals with Supreme Court justices to get them to agree to retire. They're attacking freedom of the press and the value and importance of media as a check on government power. But they want you to think that they have your interests in mind and that they support the Constitution and separation of powers and checks and balances. This is a danger now that is far bigger than Trump. And if it's not resisted, uh, and I don't see enough resistance going on, we are going to see the total subjugation and co-opting of what is arguably one of the top three meta issues. I would say it is without a doubt one of the top three meta issues that we're dealing with, which are of course campaign finance, the climate, and media, media consolidation, media ownership, net neutrality. If we allow the media to be framed as the enemy of the people, it is going to become increasingly difficult to maintain even a putative democracy, which some would argue we don't even really have here, and the fundamental, just basic respect of not an individual media outlet, because that's not what this is. That's the important thing. But just a respect for the fact that we need free and independent press in this country. happened on Sunday to reinforce just how horrible this really is, or at least how horrible it really could be. We played that clip of Donald Trump at the top of the show there. Uh, I think that was in, was that in Ohio? No, that was in uh, Fargo, North Uh, Dakota, uh, about a month ago. Oh, okay. Well, he's been increasing uh, his, his comments about the media being the enemy of the people. And I will get to what happened on uh, on Sunday that serves as a reminder of the danger that so many in the media and, yes, the progressive media have really always been in, but certainly increasingly so now with the president of the United States talking to his increasingly unhinged and constant political rallies, talking about this, targeting the media uh, not to mention his increasingly unhinged and louder and louder and more persistent Twitter feed. So on Sunday morning, by way of just one example of this, uh, Trump tweeted, quote, the fake news hates me saying that they are the enemy of the people only because they know it's true. He said, I am providing a great service by explaining this to the American people. They purposely cause great division and trust. He's talking about the media here, I guess. They can also cause war. They are very dangerous and sick. So the media are 
purposely dividing this country. They are uh, hope they're trying to cause wars. They are dangerous. They are sick. And that was just one single tweet on Sunday morning. Add that to a whole bunch of them over the past week and the past month and all of his rallies and everything else. Well, in response uh, to all of this, a few hours later, Brian Stelter, the CNN uh, media guy on his Sunday media program, he discussed the rise of these threats of violence against folks in the media in the wake of Trump's increasing rhetorical war uh, in the free press and the free media and uh, f- frankly, against journalists doing the best job that they can successfully or otherwise. And Lord knows we are very critical quite often on this program about the media, the corporate media in particular. Um, so but the media, they are doing their best to cover this insane presidency. Here was some of Stelter's remarks on Sunday, citing a death threat made to him on air by a caller on C-SPAN television on Friday. Attacks on the media are having an effect. Threats against reporters are on the rise. But instead of me just telling you that, I want you to hear it for yourself. On Friday, a caller to C-SPAN said he's going to shoot me and Don Lemon if he sees us. Now, let me just preface this by saying I'm not asking for sympathy. I don't think I'm in extreme danger. I know some of my colleagues get much worse threats than I do. CNN has a great security team, and we know how to handle this stuff. And this problem is not confined to CNN. People at Fox News and other outlets have to deal with this garbage, too. But these kinds of threats are coming in more often. So take a listen. Here's the phone call. Don, State College, Pennsylvania, supports the criticism of the media. Don, you are on the air. Good morning. Morning. Uh, it all it all started when Trump got elected. Brian Stelter and Don Lemon from CNN called Trump supporters all racist. They don't even know us. Okay, let me just stop it right there. I've never called all Trump supporters racists. Neither has Don Lemon. So what this guy is about to say is predicated on a lie. I don't even know these Americans out here, and they're calling us racist because we voted for Trump? Come on, give me a break. They started the war. I see him, I'm going to shoot him. Bye. So he says we started a war, so if he sees us, he's going to shoot us. So where did the caller get the impression that I called all Trump supporters racist? I don't know, but I do know that the night before on Fox, Sean Hannity played a two-year-old clip of me asking if racial anxiety was a factor in Trump's rise. Obviously, researchers have proven that, yes, racial anxiety and resentment was a factor, but that's not the same as calling all Trump supporters racist. And I don't know if the C-SPAN caller watched Hannity. I'm not blaming Hannity. I just thought the timing was odd. Friday's threatening phone call on C-SPAN is just a tiny illustration of the threats that are out there. Many journalists who cover politics say they are receiving more and more threats nowadays in the Trump era. MSNBC's Katie Turr sounded the alarm earlier this week. I hope you get raped and killed. One person wrote to me just this week, raped and killed. Not just me, but a couple of my female colleagues as well. And in case you wanna argue that this has nothing to do with the president, the most recent note I got ended with MAGA. Of course, there's always been unhinged people in the world, but journalists are concerned now. As as Brett Stevens wrote in the New York Times on Saturday, journalists are concerned we are approaching a day when blood on the newsroom floor will be blood 
on the president's hands. We've just heard clips today, starting with our friends from Newsbeat laying out the transition from past administrations to the present one regarding their relationship to the press. The broadcast highlighted a little-known aspect of the Comey memos regarding Trump's desire to literally put journalists in jail. The Trump cast talked with media critic Jay Rosen about how the media is incapable of holding Trump accountable on its own. On the Media gave their overview analysis on Trump's strategy to discredit the media. Tom Hartman explained why discrediting the media is always the first step of any authoritarian government. The David Pakman Show explained the new push poll the Trump Organization has put out, showing the carefully crafted plan they are working on to discredit the media. And finally, we just heard the broadcast highlighting the story of increased death threats being received by members of the media. As always, you can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And I don't have any new voicemails for you today. I have a couple of theories on that. We go through sort of phases of feast and famine when it comes to voicemails. And whenever I don't get any new ones for a while, I can't help but start to theorize that the the weight of the world is upon you and you've been struck dumb. You're overwhelmed by, by the news. Uh, people are taking mental health breaks and and uh, deciding to not engage or chime in. The events of the world seem so large, it's hard to even know how to contribute to the discussion. But let me tell you, I, I think there's a lot of value in calling into a show like this, and I don't just say this for my own benefit. Uh, people tend to not ask questions because they're afraid their questions are too dumb, but you never know how many people have the same question as you do and how much benefit could be gained by having your question answered in, in a public forum like this. Uh, people decide that they don't want to make comments because they think their comments are unworthy, maybe too simplistic. But again, you have no idea what kind of conversation you could start, where that uh, that discussion could go, uh, what ideas could be built off of your comments, uh, or maybe you're simply underestimating the value of your comments and you really do have something unique and interesting to say, or, or you know, just any kind of conversation starter you may have, same scenario. You, you never know where a conversation like that could go. And uh, as evidence for that, as I said, I, I don't have a new voicemail for you. I do have an old one, though. N not too old, just a, it's a little leftover. Recently, we had a caller who called in asking about health insurance. You know, he's basically asking, how do we know if we're being overcharged by private health insurance companies, or could it be that they're charging exactly what it costs? And if we had a single-payer system or something like that, if the government was doing it, well, they would just end up having to charge exactly the same thing. Now, anyone who knows a lot about health insurance or knows the inner workings of how for-profit health insurance companies work might think that that's an overly simplistic question, but that caller got value out of my response to him. You know, I basically just sort of explained the breakdown of how insurance companies use actuarial tables to figure out what their overall expenses are going to be in terms of uh, healthcare payouts, and then they jack up their profits on top of what they know they're already going to pay. So, so they, they dial it in really well. So, you know, I, I laid that out. 
that caller got value out of that. I'm sure other people did too. And today, for reasons that will become clear, uh, I, I decided to play a voicemail that came in in response to that question. I didn't play it originally. I thought, I, well, actually, at the time, I, I was in one of my feast phases. I had too many voicemails to get through, so this one got set aside for a little while. But trustworthy, dependable Dave from Olympia called in and gave more information about that that enlightened me a little bit, helped clarify the situation even more. So let's hear that. And I have more to say on the subject afterward. Hi, Jay. It's David out of Olympia, Washington. I just listened to your media episode, your excellent ending comments on the net cost of healthcare and the profit motive. I don't know if I'm adding anything to the conversation, but maybe just a different way of, of explaining some of that. Yeah, there's the profit. So there's in a perfect world, the amount that in aggregate everyone paid in premiums would equal the amount of health care that's purchased in aggregate on anyone's uh, behalf. Some people are going to cost more, some people are going to cost less, but in average, that should be that should be equal. The amount we pay in premiums is the amount of health care that gets purchased on behalf of all of the people that have a premium with that country. So first of all, there is overhead, and, and a well-functioning system should be able to run on three or four percent overhead. I think if Medicare runs on two, bully for them. But in the existing for-profit healthcare system, that overhead number runs closer to 15 to 18 percent. And that's because of the overlapping coverage, the practice of denying coverage and, you know, sending it in for appeal and say, well, it's not our coverage. This other insurance company should be paying for it. Oh, we don't do lab expenses. We only do the procedures. You have to go this other way. And so all the finger pointing and the crosswalk of getting medical expenses and paid is incredibly inefficient. So it's not 18%. It's, you know, 20% profit plus, you know, 15 to 18 minus the 2% for Medicare. So it's like 35% more expensive. So there's 35% slop compared to a you just a, a, an even system where you know you just process the payments and you pay for the healthcare that's consumed. In terms of perverse incentives, the real peril that I think about is real estate agents. They make a fixed percentage of the price of the house. So three percent of like nice round numbers, maybe you're buying in the nicer part of Seattle, but three percent of a million dollars is $30,000 commission. And what incentive does the real estate agent have, especially at the margins? They could negotiate and work real hard for you to get that price down to, you know, 950000 925000 But it would take a lot of work and they're actually reducing their commission for all that extra work they've put on your behalf. So there's no incentive to work really hard to keep those prices down. You know, there's a certain amount of, they, they are supposedly negotiating on your behalf, but they'll, you know, put in a maybe a competitive bid, but they're not gonna really work the system to get that price as low as possible as if they were actually working in your best interest. And that same sort of perverse incentive applies to uh, insurance agencies. Anyhow, Jay, 
Uh, as always, stay awesome. Thanks a lot. Okay, so the way Dave was talking about that, uh, it, it got my connections firing in an interesting way that I want to share with you. And now we're getting into the realm of what I was describing about how when you call in, you never know where a conversation is going to go. You never know what connections are going to get made. So the way Dave was describing that got me thinking in terms of cost plus pricing, which is essentially what we're describing here, that you figure out what a thing actually costs and then you tack your profit on top of it. Uh, it it's a great business model if you can get it. It's a guaranteed moneymaker because the whole idea is that you're not taking any risk. You're not you know, negotiating in the system. You're not trying to make yourself more efficient. You're not like fighting in the marketplace. You're just charging people exactly what it costs plus 20% or 35% or whatever it takes. So Dave made the connection with real estate agents, which I think is totally right. It's a great example. What it got me thinking of is the battle days of the Iraq war and all of the news stories about how we used to fund the private military contractors. And cost plus pricing is exactly the system the government used, maybe not all the time, but definitely a large chunk of the time. They would simply let the contractors do whatever they needed to do, rack up any expenses they needed to rack up, and then submit a bill for what it cost plus their profit, whatever their profit margin was. So obviously this created an, an incentive to make the war cost as much as it possibly could to waste as much material as you possibly could to uh, buy things as expensively as you possibly could. There were some highlighted news stories about like a hammer that cost $200 or a toilet seat that cost hundreds of dollars. And, and it was this example of these contractors who had the incentive to pay as much as they possibly could for something because that meant that they could rack up a percentage profit on top of that. And all of this line of thinking has reminded me of a story that I have been saving in my back pocket for a decade. Back in the war days when these stories were coming out, I came up with this story from my own childhood that is relevant. And then those stories sort of dried up and it's, it's for some reason, the opportunity never arose for me to tell this story. So it's only 10 years late, but thankfully the health insurance companies ha have been working with a, uh, a, a profit system as corrupt as military contractors, which gives me another opportunity to tell the story. So uh, when I was a little kid, uh, my parents had a pool in the backyard, and near the pool were rocks, uh, just sort of landscaping rocks. And so being a little kid, I, I don't know, eight, in, somewhere in that neighborhood, less than 10 for sure, I would take these rocks and skip them across the water because like I was a kid and I learned how to skip rocks. And so I was excited about skipping rocks in the water. And so I would throw a bunch of rocks in the pool. And this one day... I guess I was out there by myself or something, and my mom discovered that I was throwing a bunch of rocks in the pool, and she wanted me to get them out. And I don't know. I, I can't remember exactly how the negotiation went, but I was like, ah, oh, no, I don't, I don't want to do that. And I, I negotiated 
into a financial settlement in return for getting the rocks out of the pool. So I created the mess myself. She would have been completely within her right to simply demand that I dive in the pool and clean out all the rocks. But I, I negotiated a settlement of like a penny per rock. So what did I do? I was eight years old and I already had as much sense as a military contractor. Obviously, I got all the rocks out of the pool and then I went and got a bunch more rocks and got them wet. I didn't even have to throw them in the pool. I just got them wet, got as many as I could, got them wet, and then presented them to her basically with the bill. All right, here are all the rocks I threw in, got them all out. It's like a hundred of them now. You know, I probably only threw 20 in, presented her with a hundred rocks. You owe me a dollar now. Cost plus. That's how it works. And the point is that if an eight-year-old can figure out how to work a system like that to maximize their profits, then of course anyone can. So we have this multi-layered problem with our healthcare expenses in the U.S. where we don't regulate the cost of healthcare at the front end. So hospitals, doctors, they get to charge whatever they want. And we just pretend as a society that there are market forces that help regulate the price of healthcare, like market forces regulate the price of other things. But there is no free market in healthcare because you can't shop around when you're in an emergency. So doctors and hospitals, like, they pretty much get to charge whatever they want. And if you actually do take the time to shop around, you call up a couple of different emergency rooms or, or imaging centers, they will give you wildly different prices on the cost of different procedures. And none of it makes any sense. It is not based on market dynamics by any stretch. So first of all, we don't uh, regulate the price of healthcare. And then you have the health insurance company whose incentive is to make the cost of healthcare go as high as it possibly can because they work on a cost plus model. Like with my rock story, if insurance companies could figure out a way to make people more sick or to just pretend people are sick and have to pay more expenses they would jump at the opportunity because then they could raise their rates, say, hey, we have to pay for all these expenses, plus we got to jack up our 35% overhead and profit margins on top. So what can we do? So the moral of the story is keep those comments coming in because you never know where they're going to lead. I, I might have a story that I've been saving up for years that may come out based on a, a question or a comment you make. So as always, the number to dial 202-999-3991. Thanks everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash left. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog, and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestofleft.com. Mm-hmm.